Welcome to GRE Snacks, snackable episodes about the GRE exam and graduate school admissions. I'm Tyler, founder of Achievable. Our affordable 199 GRE course includes everything you need to ace your GRE. Full textbook, tons of GRE questions, and a full-length practice exams. You can try it out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast will get you 10% off at checkout. Um, and if you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode of GRE Snacks, please contact me at tyler at achievable.me with the subject line podcast topic. Let's get started. So, uh, brought back Clay Daniel today. I'm really excited to have him back on the show. And this time we're going to be going through a piece of the reading section. Um, and one of his tactics, what he calls both sort of the journey through, through a reading section passage on the GRE, as well as using the nature of language to assess the answers in that reading section. Um, so I think you might also have an example passage picked out for, the, for us this time as well. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Yeah. So then we'll make sure to include that in, link in the description so you can follow along if you want. If not, it'll also be totally uh, fine to just listen. Um, but yeah, Clay, take us away. What is, tell us about the journey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice metaphor, isn't it, right? We're, we're all on one and we, we take journeys. Um, so it's a good way of, to think of going through um, the passage. And it's especially helpful to think about longer passages on the GRE. So um, mm-hmm. I'm in section four of the test uh, that will be linked with this podcast. And looking at questions nine to 12... Um, which is about the work of English writer Afra Bain. So, um, but but as you mentioned, the things that that I'll be I'll be saying are more broadly applicable. So so the journey metaphor is is to think about it like this: as you as you take your journey through the passage, imagine that you are um, you're on a journey where, let's say you you live in in the city, but you're going to go on a longer drive. Um, so you hop in the car, and as you navigate through the city, you of course. You know, you have to use a lower gear. You start and you stop. You hit traffic. And then, you know, later on, as you kind of emerge from the city, you hit that glorious moment where you hit the open road and, and you can kind of kind of open it up. Well, going right. through a passage, right? It's, it, you, could, you could think of it like that in the sense that when you start reading a passage, it's like you're in the city. You, you, you have to keep your reading gear, so to speak, in a lower gear, um, it's not time to mm-hmm. skim or to to move more quickly at this point because the first paragraph is always going to be vital for your understanding and and laying down a, a number of key things. Certainly the the broader topic and then and then how that topic kind of narrows uh, and then by the end of the first paragraph you're at really a crucial juncture and you know this is this is maybe you're getting toward the edge of the city. And that's really to say one of two things is happening. Either by the end of the first paragraph, you have kind of a traditional essay where the thesis is clear, right? The author has, has laid out the thesis and as we were probably all trained to do in school, put your thesis in right. your first paragraph, right? And, and then it's going to unfold it from there. Uh, but then sometimes there are, there are kind of unusual passages which are more kind of inductive in nature um, and they're developing slowly and we, we don't actually get the thesis till later. Um, but thinking of yourself as reading that first paragraph in, in, in that slower gear leads you to ask that question and make sure you have a satisfactory answer to that before you get out on the open road 
and start to move more quickly. Um, so looking at this first paragraph, uh, it introduces the author and then it introduces a literary critic, Rachel Carnell, who is, is commenting on the writer Bain. Uh, and, and by the time we get to the end of the, the first paragraph, we have a, a sentence that starts, Carnell argues that Bain dot, dot, dot. And that really sounds like a thesis kind of sentence because it, it seems clear at this point that the author of this passage is not writing from his or her own point of view, but summarizing what Carnell has to say about this other author. Yeah, gives you a lot of context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we can tentatively suggest that that's the thesis, the main idea of this passage. And as we move into the next paragraph, we can take a, a little bit more kind of framework approach where we, we still look for a few things, but we feel free to, to skim or to move a little bit more quickly through the details because we know that the clock is ticking for one. And, and secondly, uh, the the passage is always going to be there for us. We don't have to memorize the details. It'll be there on the left side of the screen. Um, so as we look at the topic sentence of the second paragraph, it it's still describing Carnell's view of, of Bain and gives us a fairly general sentence. But the other thing we'll note along the way, I like to think of as, as the signposts uh, or the signs that you see out on the highway. You know, when you're out on the open road, you don't have to, you probably don't have to change gears. Let's say you're driving a, a stick shift. You, you probably don't have to start and stop too much, but you do notice the signs as you go that kind of mark your journey. Well, we have the word in the, starting the second sentence, we have the word, however, that's always going to be an important signpost, right? A word like however, or but, and when we see those kind of signposts or indicators that calls us to zero in and even to slow down a little bit for that sentence before maybe we, we open the engine back up. Okay. Right. Cause it's, cause you're probably taking a turn here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Uh, and don't want to take that too fast. You might, you might roll, roll the car, something like that. So, uh, <laughs> so we need to capture kind of what Carnell um, is, this seems to be something distinctive about her interpretation of the writer Afro Bain. And, you know, students can, can read over that. Um, the point is that this applies more broadly. And another reason that the however is important is even as we maybe scan or skim a little bit, we always want to keep an eye out for unexpected, as you put it, turns and twists. In other words, we, we always want to be open to the possibility that there's a third voice here. Because we have the voice of the author, Bain, we have the voice of the critic, Carnell, who is speaking about Bain. But is there going to be a third voice, the author's voice, that... The author of the passage, Of right? the passage, right? That, right. that maybe is responding to both of those. Maybe she, this author, let's say, will criticize Carnell, who is a critic of Bain or, or an analyst of Bain's writing. We, we want to keep an eye open to that. Now, in this particular passage, it turns out as we get to the end and we slow down at that last sentence, you can think of the last sentence as almost like your destination. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen any hints that the author is interjecting herself, let's say. Um, yeah. Right. The second to actually, it's even the last long sentence 
It just says, according to Carnell, Bain's choice of literary form, etc., etc. It's still summarizing, and it ends with no interjection by the author. And so we know that the journey has ended with, uh, without a surprising turn. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to lead right into the first question, which is asking us about the main idea. And we know that an answer choice that says something like arguing or refuting or criticizing or rebutting isn't going to be a good answer because we understand that the author of the passage is reporting someone else's view. So it pays okay. off right away in uh, in the way we kind of end the journey with a confirmation of what the first paragraph showed us. Does that right. make sense? And, and yeah, and to dig into it a little more, I mean, you're, you talk about like the nature of language to assess answers. It sounds like you're able to eliminate some potential answers really quickly just based on how like this passage is structured. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's a great segue because I would I'd briefly point students if, if following along in the text to question 15, um, which is a good one to talk about just because there are, there are a few reading questions that have very short passages and just one question associated with them. Um, and so question 15 is asking for the underlying assumption and as you learn about these kinds of questions, you'll begin to recognize that there's certain kind of language that is kind of a red flag um, when, when you look at, at certain answers. If we're trying to describe the author's assumption, you know, imagine speaking to the author of a passage and saying, wait, you're assuming that blank. Well, we wouldn't want to overstate what the author's assumption is because then the author could just respond and say, no, wait, that's, that's way more than I was ever saying or assuming in my argument. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the choices in the answer to this question um, starts out with the word no. No deer hunting will be allowed. Well, that's what you could call an, an extreme answer choice or an answer choice with extreme or overly bold language. It doesn't mean it can't be the right answer, but... It's, it's extremely unlikely to be so unless the argument itself is that emphatic and vehement and, ex, and extreme in its conclusion. So we're, we're so you're, you're kind of matching the tone of the answers to the tone of the, the passage as well. Yes, you're doing that as well, but, but you're also keeping in mind that some, a, a statement that's more qualified or what I like to call modest is more likely to be true. Think about it this way. If I, if I told you, you know, where I live, it sometimes rains. You'd be like, thanks for the news flash. That I mean, that's so obvious as to be a boring thing to say. Of course, it sometimes rains where you live, right? Of course, that's true. But if, if I now say it always rains where I live, I mean, right now I could point out the window and falsify that statement. And that just illustrates that extreme language is much easier to falsify. And so it's probably right. wrong. Well, and also, um, I would even say that at the very least with like the tonality, you could say it rarely rains where I live, which has a very different tone than it sometimes rains where I live. But yeah. their meaning is basically identical. Like yeah. from that point of view. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's true. Because that's um, it's identical, but rarely it is making a little bit more of a claim. In some ways, it almost finds itself between the two examples 
I get right, it, right? Like exactly. It's, it's a little more extreme than sometimes, but it's, yeah, it's not all the way it's to never or always. Never. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. And so then for the rest of our time here, do you want to go through the, the, this sort of, I think you said it was what, 12 through 15 or I, I don't have it in front of me. Well, sure. I, mean, I, I would just actually do 15 because it is yeah, kind of a self-contained that. question. I think, I think that's a, a good way to do it. So it's a short enough passage that it's worth reading and talking about the other choices. Um, so it, it says extensive housing construction is underway in Pataska forest, the habitat of a large population of deer. Because deer feed at the edges of forests, these deer will be attracted to the spaces alongside the new roads being cut through Pataska Forest to serve the new residential areas. Consequently, once the new housing is occupied, the annual number of the forest deer hit by cars will be much higher than before construction started. And, you know, it should jump out to the student who has well-practiced that that last sentence is definitely the claim or conclusion um, there's a prediction of what's going to happen. And then there's evidence for why that the deer is going to be attracted to these, you know, you're going to, they're going to clear the trees for the road. The deer will be attracted right. to this. And so we're going to have more, more deer hit by cars on the face of it. That sounds pretty reasonable. Um, but there may be something underlying it. And the question in asking for an assumption that it depends on, is suggesting that there's something unstated here that does underlie this, that in fact, right. if it were not true, would be a real problem for the argument. Right. And I think I, I, uh, I can guess what that is, but do you want me to guess or do you want to, do you want to? Yeah, go for it. Wait. Uh, the assumption is that having deer by the road means that they will get hit more. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Well, the great thing about you volunteering an assumption, Tyler, is that, um, I mean, it shows both the kind of the peril and promise of doing that. Um, because right. if you're right, you're going to recognize the answer really quickly. Um, but also, there are there can be multiple assumptions in an argument. Because as it turns out, the right answer right. isn't quite that. Interesting. Yeah. So let's go through it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but you're right. You know, there could be a number of things. Maybe these deer... Um, just because they're close doesn't mean they'll get hit. Maybe they're not very tame. They're wild. They recognize the danger. You know, it doesn't translate, as you said. But we have to be flexible as we go through the choices and look mm-hmm. for something that, if false, would really hurt the argument, right? If it's not true, it's like a pillar holding up the argument. We knock out the pillar, the argument falls over. Uh, so choice A says the number of deer hit by commercial vehicles will not increase significantly when the housing is occupied. Well, it, the claim is that there's going to be more deer hit by the cars, whereas A is talking about whether the housing is occupied or not. So it seems like maybe a glancing blow at best, right? Probably not the yep. not hit, hitting at the heart of things. Um, B, deer will be as attracted to the forest edge around new houses as to the forest edge along roads. And notice that's making a comparison. At first glance, that might seem like something sophisticated and, and right, but comparisons are often irrelevant. You know, the argument yeah. doesn't need to compare how attracted they'll be, but simply that they will be attracted and therefore be in danger. Right. The core pillar of 
if deer are next to road, that is bad, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly right. That is still there because maybe it's half of them, but it's still there. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we don't think it's that one. C says in years past, the annual number of deer that have been hit by cars on existing roads through Potaska Forest has been very low. Well, talk about an irrelevant time horizon. We're talking about the future. Mm-hmm. This now it's it, there may be cases where the past is relevant to the future, but this argument has already established the mechanism, right? You clear forest, deer are attracted, and so this is going to be a problem. We don't need past statistical evidence about what's happened, um, especially because the roads in the past are not like the roads in the future where, you know, exactly. we're, we're clearing new roads. So, yeah. So there's some issues there. Now, E is the one I mentioned that was too extreme. So that's leaving us with D, which says the development will leave sufficient forest to sustain a significant population of deer. Might not be what you predicted, but imagine like the opposite of D. <laughs> and and it often helps to kind of take things to a ridiculous ex, uh, um, extreme, you know, ad absurdum, right. as they say in logic. Uh, what if what if this is such a um, an environmentally terrible development that's going to destroy the entire forest in order to create this road and the development? Well, that probably is not going to leave a deer issue then because there'll be nowhere for them to live. Right. <laughs> there will be no deer. There will be no deer and therefore no Which deer hit by not God. get hit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and by the way, that's something that, you know, people often refer to as the negation test, meaning if you, if you negate an answer and that negation seems to destroy the argument, you found the right assumption because you found something necessary that the author was depending on. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That is not what I expected. So they're, they're basically it because, you know, if you're arguing this in some sort of debate, it would be like, well, you, you're just dodging the question entirely because you're right. But that's it, true. It is actually. So that's the correct answer. That's, that's the correct a, answer. And as you pointed out, that's not, that might not be the only assumption operating, the only unstated mm. premise that we need, but it certainly is something completely necessary. Right. And if anything, that answer, what's fascinating about it is it kind of just, it, it's kind of like saying the deer getting hit by cars doesn't matter. In a way it is. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, they'll get hit by cars, but we're going to leave enough room for them to live. Right. Yeah. It yeah. is interesting. Very cool. Well, that was a really fun exercise. It was fun to do that with you. Um, anything else you want to wrap up with before we sign off here? I would just say, you know, it, it's really important to, to practice reading well. Um, as, as that illustrates, uh, there's, there's no pure gimmick, um, that, that will just kind of magically help you on the, on the GRE section. But, but hopefully this conversation has helped students see that there are strategies and ways of reading that really can add to your insight and, and, um, your, your efficiency as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much, Clay. Um, This is Clay Daniel with Clayborn joining us today. It's Clayborn.com, C-L-A-Y-B-O-R-N-E. And this has been GRE Snacks, hosted by Tyler from Achievable. 
you can try our GRE course for free at achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off our $199 price at checkout.